Hello. Thanks for downloading the podcast. Matt Keane's on the show today. He is the New South Wales Minister for Energy and the Environment, and we're going to have a talk about how those two portfolios come together. And it's kind of interesting. It's a really good podcast. I'm really proud of it, and I'm grateful that you can be here. I know you listen to lots of podcasts. You wouldn't... Oh, thank you. Sorry, Wolfie is um, helping me with this today. He's That's my microphone. Wolf. Yeah, that's a pop filter. So I don't... See, without the pop filter, it goes... But with the pop filter, it goes... See? Yeah. Sounds different, doesn't it? Okay. Where were we? Oh, yeah. Matt Keane's on the show today. Look, you listen to a lot of podcasts. This isn't the first podcast you've ever heard. Podcasts are pretty free to listen to after you've paid for your phone and your data. But they're not free to make. There's two people... That helped me a lot, and that is Andy Ma, my audio producer, who's currently locked up in Melbourne. Uh, not in the clink, he's uh, in his house. <laughs> and Rachel Barrett, who's the executive producer of the show, and she uh, does a lot of organising and a lot of backstage work to make sure that the, we can keep the lights on. So I've got to pay these two people. So you might hear... Mama! Yeah, Mama's upstairs. I've got to pay these two people. And um, in order to pay them... You might hear an ad. So if you hear an ad, thanks for helping me pay Andy and Rachel. And um, Wolfie, shall we go upstairs? He just woke up from a nap, so he's little. Not a little. Say goodbye, Wolfie. Bye. Bye. All right. You might hear an ad. If not, you'll hear Matt Kane say something. All right. Pop filter. Bye. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the responsibility of people like me that have been entrusted by their communities to be the, their voice in Parliament, to stand up and not just do what's popular, but do what's right, to put the community interest ahead of vested interests. Now, I think this is something that goes beyond politics. I mean, climate change isn't a matter of belief, it's a matter of science. There shouldn't be any debate about the need to reduce our emissions but there can be plenty of debate about the best way to do it. There is a view that government should 
get involved and have taxes and a whole range of things. And that, that's a legitimate view. It's not one I necessarily agree with, but that is a legitimate view. You know, for me, I think that we should be creating the right market settings and uh, regulatory environment that incentivizes people to do the right thing. And that, in my view, is a very free market and liberal approach. But the idea that we should do nothing, you know, that's just a joke. That is Matt Kane, the New South Wales Minister for Energy and the Environment. And this is episode 372 of Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. I'm glad you could be a part of the show. This uh, show is called Better Than Yesterday. It does what it says on the box. Hopefully at the end, no, actually when you finish listening to this show, you'll hear something in there and at the end of the day, you'll go, you know what? Today was better than yesterday. And I feel better than I did yesterday. That's what I'm here to do. I'm here Mondays and here Fridays. Mondays I speak with a guest, Fridays I speak with you. Thanks to everyone that um, got in touch with me and emailed and go, yep, you know what, you're Friday. I've had that kind of day. Uh, you'll hear me talk about it if you listen to the episode just before this one in the podcast feed. Uh, I think it's called Check Yourself Before You Wreck Yourself because <laughs> you know what, Ice Cube and DMX forever. And thanks as well to those of you who have been recommending this podcast to other people, particularly people overseas. There's really nothing quite like for someone saying, oh, a mate in Australia told me about this show means a massive amount. I was on Twitch the other morning. I've been streaming. I'm back on the bike with gusto. My my hip rehab is now getting to a pretty good point. I'm feeling pretty good about it. Like it's still slow and it's still annoying, but I'm getting there slowly, slowly. But I'm now at a point where I can ride not like with, with a, a moderate intensity, zone two, if you know what that sort of thing is. So it's a decent amount of intensity. And I'm grateful. I can't do sprints just yet, but I'm enjoying it and I'm grateful for it. Anyway, a chap in Denver popped on and said, hey, you know, someone told me about the show. I'd love to listen to it. This bloke in Denver listening, which is great. I also spoke to someone in Haifa the other day, which was cool. That's in Israel. So yeah, you can find me. I'm on the, I'm on the in the mornings, all right? So if you get up at six, I'm probably on a bike, all right? So while you're eating your breakfast, pop on Twitch and you can have a chat with me. You can text in there and I'll talk back to you. It's great. Really enjoying it. Twitch.tv slash Ginsburg. Before we get to um, our guest today, just a kind of quickish intro because uh, I do want to get to the guest. Before we do get to the guest, I do want to talk about one other episode because this episode we're going to talk a lot about the economic possibilities that are there for our country if we have leaders who are ready to go as we move and transition away from fossil fuels. Because you know I like to talk about climate because climate change and decarbonisation, that really is all there is to talk about for the next 200 years. I don't Really, that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's where we are, okay? And... Um, it's a great chat with Matt, but before we get to Matt, if conversations about climate activism are kind of new for you, or if you are going through an experience which I most definitely can resonate with and relate to of just being so confronted by the facts of climate change that you kind of don't want to engage with it and it's too intense and you kind of want it to go away, it's not going to go away as much as we wish it would, it won't. If you're dipping your toe into what it means to take an active role in protecting what we can around your future, my future, the future of our children, not only environmentally, but also economically. 
You might want to slide back onto the podcast feed and check episode 333 with the profoundly powerful Margaret Klein Salomon. She is an exceptional human being. And she's also the author of the book, Facing the Climate Emergency, Transform Yourself with Climate Truth. Here's just a taste. The world that we're living in today is done. It's in its last gasps. And the options are collapse or transform. And while that is horrifying, it is also intensely hopeful because given that we have to transform, we have to create a better world, who knows what we can do? That's episode 333 of Better Than Yesterday with Margaret Klein Salomon. Uh, check that out in the podcast feed. Just uh, scroll back a little ways and you'll find it there once you're done with this episode with Matt. So let me tell you about my guest today, Matt Keane is the New South Wales Minister for Energy and the Environment, which is, so he's in charge of both. And this is a portfolio, I guess, that was combined. They were separate jobs. Now it's one job. It uh, got combined when the Berejiklian government in New South Wales came back to power in uh, March 2019. Now, first of all, that should tell you something, that the coupling of our need to protect both sources of energy that we need in our life to survive and our environment which we need in our life to survive, combining those under one minister should kind of tell you something about how seriously some people are taking this. Matt is quite the young gun. He really is. He negotiated an an energy emissions deal between New South Wales and the Commonwealth, which is the largest single financial commitment to state-based emissions reduction in the history of our country. And most recently, which is, we talk a lot about this today, he got Australia's most ambitious renewable energy policy kind of ever through the New South Wales Parliament with broad cross-party support, like bipartisan support, you'd call it in America. So yeah, he got the party from the bush that represents the farmers and the miners. And he also got the the party from the city that represents the workers and all. Like he got everyone on board. And um, we talk a lot about how he did that too today, which is incredible. Now, you may remember Matt Kane. You may remember his face because he was one of the first conservative politicians in Australia to absolutely call out the link between climate change and the unprecedented bushfire season we had in 2019, 2020. Matt is a strong advocate for a science and economics-led approach to climate change. I didn't think there was such a thing because to me that would be just far too common sense to use science and economics as a way to navigate our way through this. Science we cannot argue with, but economics is the thing that got into this problem and economics is the really the most powerful tool we have at this point to get us out of this problem. And I didn't quite believe that that sort of thing would ever happen. I I really didn't when I first went completely nuts, when I slipped into climate anxiety. Now, what happened, uh, if you, I'm sure you remember, at the end of 2019 and the start of 2020, while the east coast of Australia was literally burning to the ground, all right, it was actually December 2019. So our prime minister at the time is on holidays in Hawaii while Australia is burning down through the most vicious, intense heat waves and like the most horrible weather that had ever, like it was bonkers. The federal government's approach, their line was getting absolutely slammed for not doing enough to battle bushfires, which were destroying so much of our country 
and getting absolutely slammed for not linking these incredibly damaging, dangerous, horrible, destructive, death-bringing bushfires to climate change. And in the middle of this, in December, like early December 2019, when this was all happening and Sydney is just surrounded by smoke and you could hardly breathe here, there was um, a great planning on their behalf. There was a smart energy summit, uh, which is, I guess, a summit to talk about smart energy and the future and moving forward. And Keane spoke, Matty spoke. And I'll quote him because it's worth... Now, bear in mind, this is wild for a person. He's from the Liberal Party, which in Australia is not liberal. They are the Conservative Party. And the Liberal Party in Australia, they very much, they don't allow conscience votes, conscience votes. They're very much like, you know, this is the party line and therefore that is what your vote will be. I don't understand why. For me, that's not democracy, but that's what they choose to do. And in the middle of all this, Matt speaks up and he said that, the weather conditions that we were experiencing on that day, I think it was December the 9th, 2019, and the, you know, the fact that the fire was burning right on Sydney's doorstep. And he said, this is exactly what the scientists have warned us would happen. I'm, I'm quoting here, longer dry periods resulting in more drought and bushfire. If this is not a catalyst for change, then I don't know what is. This is not normal and doing nothing is not a solution. Now, for someone like me to hear someone from the Liberal Party speak like that, it was incredible. He went on to say, we need to reduce our carbon emissions immediately and we need to adapt our practices to deal with this kind of weather becoming the new normal. Now, up until then, up until that moment, the people in power, the people that we elected to protect our country, our people, our economy, our future, they were straight up ignoring it on a beach in Hawaii, all right? And it was it's just mind-blowing that this person from this conservative party, uh, a state-based conservative party, not the federal party, but they are, you know, there's a, a, a big team. They all come up through the same system, as far as I know. For him to speak out like that was like, oh, holy shit, he's broken ranks here. Now, so it may surprise you to know that I'm not a liberal voter. Uh, I don't mind telling you that. You'll hear Matt and I talk about this because I actually use that voting compass thing that the ABC have to figure out where I am. I'm surprisingly centrist. Now, I'm not a liberal voter, but I know plenty of people that are. There's some of my dearest friends in the world are, you know, staunch liberal voters. And that's fine. Because personally, I, I have to, and more and more I'm trying super hard I just cannot let perfect be the enemy of good. And also, I really want to believe that even at the highest levels of power in our country, that I would find something in common with those who I see from the outside as just chaotically harmful to all of us. I really want to believe that there is something that that person and me would both care about. I don't know how I'd go face to face with some of the backbench, but hey, you know, we'll see what happens if they ever come on the podcast. Now, I've interviewed Matt's boss before. Uh, the Premier of New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian. She was, it was a great conversation. I'd like to think that she and I found some common ground because I think it's important to find common ground, even for someone who's of a political party that I'm not really aligned with. And as you'll hear in this chat, Matt and I do find some common ground as well, which is important to recognise because just because a politician is green or Labor or, or whatever, the chances are that there's something that, something that you care about that they care about too. 
all right? Which is really important, really important to recognize. And look, to be honest, we just don't have the time to wait for the person from your team to be the one that gets the rapid climate action policy over the line. We just don't have the time. We can't let perfect be the enemy of good. We just can't wait. We don't have the time to wait. We've wasted decades faffing about with misinformation and election lies and, and lobbying and muddying the waters. We, the atmosphere doesn't give a shit who we vote for or what we believe. In economic parlance, global warming, the carbonisation of the atmosphere, climate change, whatever you want to call it, it is a massive unavoidable externality that will force our hand eventually, all right? There's no getting out of it. It's up to us how much and how badly, all right? Which is where the opportunity arises. Because as we transition off of fossil fuels and migrate workforces towards new parts of an economy that are expanding or parts of an economy that have never existed before, the opportunity for us as a country to do so many things better and to absolutely prosper, that opportunity is colossal. And to make sure that capital feels safe enough to invest in that transition, you're going to need governments to make the people that invest that capital feel safe about putting that money in, which is where someone like Matt comes along. Now, Matt's a numbers guy. He's a science guy. I, I kind of dug that, but you hear us kind of get into it a bit. I'm glad we got the chance to chat. You can find him on Instagram, I guess, if you want to go and engage him there. Uh, Matt Keane, MP, M-A-T-T-K-E-A-N-M-P on Instagram. Enjoy this chat with Matt Keane. You probably don't want to see it, but it's a bit gross. Scar's about that long. Wow. Um, I'm down to one crutch, which is, which is good. I see the exercise bike that the physio's clearly got. Well, no, 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 no. There's, that's the streaming rig. So there's no, um, <laughs> there'll be no bicycle riding for quite a while. Is this the podcast tower? Oh, yes, you... this, yes, is where right. we are. Right. Okay. It's very harsh. With a, a, uh, a dodgy home insulation job that me and my father-in-law did. <laughs> um, but it means that it, I can sit in here in the daytime now, uh, which I wasn't able to do. Before that's my, our baby boy. He's about twenty minutes off of his nap, so he's downstairs. So he may chime in every, every now and again. Matt Wolfie is six months older than my son. Six so, months uh, older. You're, you're uh, six months ahead of us on the sleeping curve, I suspect. Right. So. All right then. Well, two things. Number one, you should listen to Dad Pod, which I made with Charlie Clawson, particularly okay. season two. This time with facts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Season one's great, don't get me wrong. Season yep. one's us going through it all. Uh, but season two is like, here's the stuff we wish we knew for the first, you know, when, when we were getting pregnant. But we'll come back with yep. Yeah, yeah. But it, you, you'll dig it. So, look, I know I wanted to ask you about that. What? So your baby boy was born in January, right? January, yep, just before the pandemic. Oh, my goodness. We were really lucky, right, because at the time, about three weeks later, everyone was going to meltdown about COVID. And so we were able to get into the hospital. I was able to be in the birthing suite. Yeah, there, yeah. there were issues like, yeah, so it was just an extraordinary time for him to enter the world. Tell me about, yeah, our kids chose a pretty interesting time in human history to, yes. get, to get born, Matt, which yeah. is why we're talking today. But tell me about the day. Tell me about your experience of the day your son was born. Well, uh, the missus and I, so he was a bit late and... Uh, I distinctly remember the missus and I, it was January, 
It was the hottest day ever. We were sitting there watching Marriage Story, which if you've seen Marriage Story, you'll know that that's probably not, not the most romantic thing to watch before you go through such a life-changing event. It's about a couple that basically are out to kill each other and their family busts up. And yeah. um, sitting there watching that, I just order a pizza and Wendy's like, I think I'm going to labour. I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. And she's like, no, I think I'm going to labour. So I didn't even get to eat my pizza that night. Or should I? Like, <laughs> so we raced down to Hornsby Hospital, yeah. get the birthing suite, the doors swing open, the nurse sees Wendy down on a horches, screaming in pain. She says to me, aren't you, Matt Keane? Love the stuff you're doing on climate change. Oh, right. she's, like, and she's like, it's not about him. It's not about <laughs> Yes. Oh, so, my goodness. Yeah. Audrey and I did have a bit of that, and I was I was like, "Don't talk about work. Don't not talk, <laughs> do not talk about work." Because as we learned in our birthing course, the one thing that will stop labour is uh, adrenaline. You need as much oxytocin as possible, and yeah. anger and frustration is something that will bring adrenaline to the surface. So that's why they're always like, try to make it a smooth transition from the house to the hospital, <laughs> make it a smooth transition from the car to the lift. Try and make sure everything's organised. Nothing's a hassle. Make sure you checked in early. You don't want to be barking about health insurance and you know, <laughs> in between I'm contractions. Sure I on every front. Oh, dude. <laughs> What was it like watching her actually give birth? Like, I, I know what it was like for me as a man to witness the physical feat. I know what it was like for me. What was it like for you? Osha, it was just mind-boggling. Like, I, I had this newfound respect for my mother. I mean, the, the ordeal that the mum goes through is just extraordinary. And um, to produce, like, this living, breathing, beautiful thing at the end of it, it's just amazing. Um, we had a very weird experience. Like, when he was... When he'd sat me down and said, look, we've got to write this birth plan. And I'm thinking, what, what the hell do I know about writing a birth plan? This is my first rodeo. Anyway, so we sit down. This was like a PhD. Like, you know, there was no stone left unturned. We get into the birth suite, rips up birth plan, decides we're going to do it in the bath. And I'm like, are you sure about this? Are you sure you're sure? Anyway, so birth plan out the window, in the bath. Wendy does an amazing job. I'm just like there as the moral support. What was your experience with the midwives? Uh, well, the thing about being the local MP and having it in your local hospital, <laughs> they all know you, so there's no privacy whatsoever. I mean, they, they were absolutely phenomenal. I, yeah. I, I said that in the nicest way. No privacy in terms of they were up for a chat, they knew what was going on, they knew yeah. all about Tom, they knew all about Wendy and I. Like, it was awesome. And, in fact, the midwife was my next-door neighbour growing up, so it was just incredible. What a beautiful moment. What a beautiful moment to have someone from your life to be a part of this day. Yeah. What was it like when you, there's a thing that happens to you and I felt it when I became a stepfather and I felt it again when Wolfgang was born. There's a thing when you suddenly realize, oh crikey, it's not just about the next 50 years or so or however long I've got. Oh man, I'm really, like, did you feel that? Did you feel that wash over you? It's amazing now that he's developing his little personality and yeah. like I just, I'm so excited to get home to see him. I'm so excited to, you know, just sit on the floor and play with him. Like, you know, I'll go through days where you're hanging out with celebrities like yourself, you know, writing policy that's going to change the world. And then you get home and you're like, nah, stuff all that. This is the most important thing. You know, your kid and everyone else's kids out there. And you just realize it puts everything into perspective. Yeah. I always, I'm constantly reminding Audrey, you know, and she's constantly reminding me, like, he's never ever going to be this little again. You wake up the next day, he's actually bigger. 
I went to the hospital for three days to get my hip done. I came back. He was, you know, three, 300 yep. grams heavier and his face had changed. Like, Jesus. <laughs> Your son was born in the middle of the worst bushfire catastrophe in the history of our nation, the hottest summer on record, which was the hottest by only the last summer and the one before that. What was it like to hold your baby and suddenly see different stakes for the work you've been doing in your life? It was a really confronting time because, I mean, I remember when he was born, 12th of Jan, the city was shrouded in smoke. The debate around climate and what the future for our planet was, it was absolutely raging. You know, a couple of weeks after we went straight into a pandemic, you know, the likes of which no one had ever seen before. So it was an utterly frightening frightening time to be entering the world. And I guess, you know, for me as someone that has the ability to shape, I guess, you know, his destiny and the destiny of so many people, it really sunk in how important my job was. And, you know, that's what really put a rocket up me this year to try and crack on with fixing or, you know, moving the country forward when it comes to dealing with climate change. Because there really was a moment when Australia, like, it, it was utterly terrifying. I live 80 kilometres from the fire front and there was ash on my motorbike seat, you know. it was It's yeah. horrifying. And then every time you open your phone, there's a, another koala on fire. It's just astonishing. And then to see the people that we, I mean, not particularly me, it's probably you wouldn't have to listen to my podcast much, probably know where I kind of, I'm kind of on the centre, but, you know, much like now that I walk with one crutch, <laughs> I might lean a little left, but I'm generally fairly centrist. People kind of get a bit yep. of mis- get a bit a, a lot wrong about me, and they think because I am for progressiveness is as far as environmentalism and as far as that you know environmentalism and capitalism can work together, and that I'm a firm believer in that. Um, because it's not burn everything. <laughs> um, people think I'm a greenie. I'm not really in in many ways. You know, even like for me, I look I look at these people who are in charge. I didn't elect them, but they're the ones in charge. They're like, okay, you're in charge, and to see just nothing but denial and nothing but obfuscation and nothing but minimizing. It's like, you're supposed to be the adult in the room right now. We are fucking terrified, man. What's it like? Like you are, uh, as far as people listening overseas, you're on the uh, the state level of, of politics, yep. not the federal level of politics. I'm talking about the federal leaders. As someone who's on a state level, but in the same party, to break and go, actually, no, this is totally 100% climate change. Does your phone just ping and does the party whip go, right, you're off the Christmas card list, Matt, never coming again? <laughs> like, what happens? Not at all. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, the pandemic really showed me how out of touch some of these people are. I mean, the same peanuts that have been denying climate change are the same broken toys that have been saying that the government overreacted to the COVID restrictions, that, you know, it was just a flu, it was just a hoax. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, not only do they ignore the scientists, but they also ignore the overwhelming evidence. And I think we've really got to remember that when they demand to be taken seriously about our children's futures. And there's too much at stake here to basically stick our head in the sand, put our hand, you know, fingers in our ears and pretend like nothing's happening. You know, this is what the scientists have told us would happen for ages hotter, drier summers, more extreme weather events, leading to the conditions that we saw last summer. And it's not just happening here in Australia. We saw it overseas this year. We saw California have bushfires on the scale that we had here in New South Wales. So, you know, climate change is not something that's happening in the future. It's something that's happening right now. Oh, yeah, man. Like this morning I look at my phone and I'm like, oh, well, Byron Bay's gone. 
Like it's actually <laughs> washed away. Lismore's underwater. It's, it's horrifying. The at my in-laws' house, they live on a canal up in Brisbane. The water came over the seawall for the first time in their entire lives. And like you can't be in denial of that. Look, we've done so well getting through COVID as a nation because we listen to the science, we listen to the experts, and we made decisions in line with the facts. So why is it when it comes to climate change, there's a whole bunch of people that want to try a different strategy where we make decisions based on ideology and mythology and think that's going to work? I mean, it's totally crazy. So talk to me about that because I know somewhere between the people, people <laughs> like a simple story. You know, people like a simple story and that's how conspiracy theories kind of jump up because it's a, the most interesting, simple version, the grand narrative, good versus evil, black versus white, whatever, is the one that's easiest to believe. So somewhere there's a smoky room, probably all vape clouds by now, but, you know, it's the Minerals Council on one side and it's whoever's in politics on the other. And to quote Bill Hicks, it was like, you know, <laughs> okay, buddy, Here's what you're going to do. And and the people who just got elected go, yeah, no worries. And I know it's a very cynical view of things, but when you look at policy and you look at who then goes on to work within the fossil fuel industry after they leave politics, it's like, it's hard to look at, Matt. It's hard to believe that there's our actual best interests at heart when it comes to these big national decisions. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a bit of that that goes on, but there's also been a failure of leadership, I think. You know, it's the responsibility of people like me that have been entrusted by their communities to be the, their voice in parliament, to stand up and not just do what's popular, but do what's right, to put the community interest ahead of vested interests. Now, can I explain why a whole bunch of elected officials, not just here in Australia, but right around the world, don't do that? Not really. Do I want to be one of them? Absolutely not. And I think this is something that goes beyond politics. I mean, climate change isn't a matter of belief. It's a matter of science. There shouldn't be any debate about the need to reduce our emissions, but there can be plenty of debate about the best way to do it. There is a view that government should get involved and have taxes and a whole range of things, and that, that's a legitimate view. It's not one I necessarily agree with. But that is a legitimate view. You know, for me, I think that we should be creating the right market settings and uh, regulatory environment that incentivizes people to do the right thing. And that, in my view, is a very free market and liberal approach. But the idea that we should do nothing, you know, that's just a joke. Which has been the policy, unfortunately, since the freaking 70s, when someone kind of really first put their hand up and went, um, <laughs> hang on a second. <laughs> Well, not, not really, and I'll, I'll push back. I mean, you know, we've been talking about this since the 80s. It was George H.W. Bush in the US that basically uh, said that he wanted to tackle climate change. It was Margaret Thatcher in the 90s, not known for her progressive credentials that was saying, you know, this is a serious issue and we need to address it. You know, climate change didn't start out as a political issue. We made it one. Yeah. There's a bit of theory about that, like if only Al Gore hadn't have made his movie, <laughs> yeah, I know it is. Like, it's an interesting theory. I don't know if I agree with it, but it's an interesting one to consider. Like, if only someone as high profile as a Democratic vice president in the States hadn't have made this massively successful film, it's then very easy to attack because it is made by someone who's so clearly Democrat in the, in the American political term. So it's very easy to attack his point of view and then dismiss his system, and then it gets quite politicised. But, but you're right when you were saying earlier that, yes, it was 
there were quite very trying lockdown conditions for Australia, particularly in Victoria, very, very hard in Melbourne. But now look, look at what happens when we followed the science. Look at what happens when we as a nation realise this is a sacrifice we have to make and it's for the greater good. I've got friends overseas, you've got friends overseas. Oh, my brother's in, in Detroit, I've got mates in Los Angeles, I've got friends in London. It is not good. <laughs> it is so frightening. 50 people a day dying in Canada, 3,000 people a day dying in America, economically, socially, terrible, 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 terrible. But we don't because we followed the freaking science and we follow, and we did the right thing economically and now here we are. So these guys, Matt, they've kind of showed their hand. They've shown that they can read a graph. They've shown that they can see, you know, hospital capacity versus cases. Hmm, let's see if we can't sort this out before we get to that curve. Well, guess what, boys? There's another curve that you need to worry about. Oh, I should... The same people were denying climate change, the same armchair scientists claiming that COVID was just a flu, that restrictions were an overreaction causing unnecessary economic hardship. And this is the problem, whether it be in that debate or the climate debate, that it's been the, the extreme right, the crazy right on one side of the debate versus the extreme left on the other side of the debate. And, you know, they're the ones getting worked up about this. They're the ones that occupy newspaper space. And who gets left out of the debate? The sensible centre. The sensible centre. The mums and dads at the school gate that listen to your podcast. The people that are so busy putting food on the table, looking after their kids, ferrying them to sport, holding down a job, running a family, you know, all that kind of stuff, that they don't have time to get in these stupid culture wars. They just want to elect their governments and their governments to get on with solving the big problems of the day. And I don't think there's a bigger problem of the day than addressing this issue of climate change or COVID or or these kind of things. That's why you elect people like me. When you speak like this and and help for people who may not know, it seems like there's a a quite a difference between state level liberal party and and federal level liberal party. What does it mean for someone like you to split or or be so outspoken, particularly around the bushfires to say, no, this is definitely 100% climate change when the the party line has been, oh, we don't know yet. Well, it's too early to tell. And you've gone, no, your hair's up your butt. Um, I can't see the end of my street for the smoke. (laughs) I mean, it's it's not the party line to have that. I mean, there are some people within the party that have taken that position. They've got a lot of airtime and they've dictated party policy for a long time. I'm not doing this uh, in spite of the fact I'm a conservative. I'm doing it because I am a conservative. You know, I think that conservatives uh, are about protecting things that are important. I don't think there's anything more important than our environment. And I, I think that I represent the true liberal tradition. And these other people are populist voices that are not in line with the liberal values. I mean, the centre right of Australian politics has a lot to be proud of when it comes to the environment. I mean, they stopped drilling for oil on the Great Barrier Reef. They stopped whaling. They set up the National Parks and Wildlife Service in this country. They protected Fraser Island and Kakadu National Park. You know, this is who centre-right governments have traditionally been. And I, I plan on reclaiming that legacy because I think that's what the centre of Australian politics, the broad Australian public wants. Governments to make decisions based on science, on economics, on expert advice. And that's what I've been doing. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. 
or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It is kind of interesting that things like this, and if you look at our country's history, you look at the massive infrastructure projects that the real nation building stuff, the stuff that the infrastructure we still use today, Sydney Harbour Bridge, Great Ocean Road, Snowy, whatever you name it. For me, as progressive as I like to think I am, I also accept that many of the things that I wish could happen will only happen under a conservative government because they're the only people who are going to be able to take the people from the real other side of the coin for me along for the ride, which is something that you did. You're in a coalition with the National Party and to get this legislation across in, in New South Wales, you had to do a lot of talking, obviously, between yourselves, but also you had to do a lot of, crossing, a lot of talking across the aisle, which is something that we rarely see. You talked about how, how partisan it is and how reactionary it is and how there's these humongously loud voices way out on the fringes. What does it actually mean to try and even start a, a bipartisan conversation with someone? Because you're dealing with closure of massive infrastructure, blokes in boiler suits, people standing in front of them in a high-vis vest. That's the photo on the wall of the Labor politician, right? You're talking with the bread and butter of, of, of kind of the Labor Party. You're going to have to get them on side if we go, okay, well, these things have got to shut down. There's people who are ending their careers. There's people who just started their careers. We've got to make sure they're all taken care of. How do you even begin those conversations? Well, I think... What we had to do was understand what was motivating the different constituencies as represented by the political parties. So we knew that the parties on the left uh, saw this as a great moral challenge, uh, but they were concerned about their voting base, you know, blue-collar workers, those uh, skilled labourers that could be displaced as part of this transition. So we needed to make sure that our package was sympathetic to that and had a solution for that. We, you know, had to talk to the Green movement, um, you know, and understand what was motivating them. I mean, let's not forget that it was uh, the Greens that voted against an emissions trading scheme. So we didn't want them to make the same mistake or we didn't want to make the same mistake when we went to them. We needed to give them something that they could get behind. They could build on it later if the politics swings in a different direction. But what we wanted to do was move the debate forward. That's what we did. But just as importantly as securing the progressive voices, so too was bringing the conservative elements of Australian body politics along the journey. And what are conservatives concerned about? What what motivates them in this debate? Well, it's the impact is going to be on the economy. How is it going to affect people's jobs and livelihoods? Those industries that could be disrupted, how do we ensure that no one is left behind? And that's why our package reached out to the National Party. They were concerned about rural and regional voters and uh, workers and uh, opportunities. And this, the package that we've just passed through the parliament looked after that. Right-wing liberals, they were concerned about the economy. And the package is an economic growth package, uh, not a job-destroying one. 
So it was about building a broad coalition, reaching across the aisle, finding common ground. And that's how you do reform that's lasting and durable. When you look at the evidence that you would have had to present to these people to, to, to make your argument. When you look at the projections, obviously you put a lot of effort into projecting the economic outcomes. Let's just stick with it. Like I had a, a, a fantastic friend of mine. She's a um, ocean conservationist, Diana Elizabeth Johnson. Her role, her line is great. He's like, yeah, 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 it's really bad. It could get too hot to go outside. The coral reefs could all die. The sea levels will rise. It's going to be really bad. Just, okay, what are we going to do? Like we have to accept how much trouble we're in, how much devilishly bad trouble we're in and then what are we going to do about it? How are we going to get out of this the best we possibly can? So when you first saw the cost, economic cost of doing nothing versus the potential for growth by doing something, what did it feel like to go, hang on, what? <laughs> like, surely there was that moment. Let me be very clear with you. I mean, the reason I'm a liberal is because I believe in markets. I'm uh, an economically rational operator. I mean, for God's sake, I'm a chartered accountant, Osha. That's that's where I get on my personality from. So that's that's what motivates me. And this is definitely an environmental issue. There's no doubt about it. We're seeing it not in the future. We're seeing it right now. But the economics have changed in this debate. Previously, decarbonising the economy came at a massive cost to the citizens and businesses of New South Wales and indeed the country. Now, there is a cost to not decarbonising, and that's what's changed. The technology has come down the cost curve so dramatically. The cheapest way today to deliver new electricity generation is not coal, gas, and certainly not nuclear. It's a combination of wind, solar, pumped hydro, and batteries. And that's not the spin, Osha. That's the science. That's the CSIRO. That's the independent energy market operator that runs the system. So, again, if we make decisions... Uh, that are economically rational in this space, guess what? They're also the right environmental decisions. And no one wins more from global efforts to reduce carbon emissions than Australia. I mean, we've got the best renewable resources anywhere on the planet, best sun, the best wind. We've got plenty of pumped hydro opportunities. And we're already seeing international markets shifting, looking for different kind of products to power in their economies. They're moving away from coal and fossil fuels to new cleaner energy. And we can provide that through things like the Sun Cable Project, where Mike Cannon-Brooks, who's utterly brilliant, one of the craziest people I've ever met, is going to build a massive extension cord from the outback of Australia up to Singapore and still deliver them electricity that's cheaper than what they're currently getting it for. I mean, that's crazy. But it's not just about the exporting electrons. It's also about producing molecules. And we know that countries like Japan, Korea, Germany, countries that have already set plans to transition their economies to a hydrogen-based economy, we are really well-placed to provide that because we can create low-emissions products that other countries are going to need to decarbonise, like green steel, ammonia, aluminium. That'll create huge job opportunities here, create new industries and underwrite our prosperity for future generations. So this is as much an economic argument as it is an environmental argument. And I'm just saying... Why wouldn't we grab these opportunities? What have we got to lose? And that, for me, it's like, yes, we've got a lot of iron ore. What if we were to take that iron ore and instead of throwing, what is it, 780 kilograms of coking coal at it to make it into a ton of steel, throw 15,000 mirrors or whatever we do to, to make that, you know, that power. And rather than shipping our iron to another country so it becomes steel that we then buy back, it 
like as an economic, I didn't really do very well in high school, but even I can figure out that that's silly. <laughs> you know, it gives us an opportunity to own this stuff. This is exactly right. I mean, we're already seeing those countries saying we're committed to hit net zero emissions. So in order to do that, we can't be importing goods and services that have been generating using fossil fuels or that are carbon intense. So they're looking for cleaner products and we're really well placed to provide them. If we keep, you know, rely on our existing industries and ignoring these global megatrends, then basically we're not going to be able to export stuff overseas. And that's catastrophic for our economy. For a small open market economy like Australia, if we don't move with these global megatrends, we are going to be a rust bucket state. That's the reality. And no, I do not want that. I don't want that for me because I'll be alive, but I certainly don't want it for my kids. It's big news at the moment that China's not, you know, uh, wanting to buy our coal right now. What you're talking about is an opportunity to be like, well, like, because I've always thought to myself, energy independence is also political independence. Like, if we do not have to play nice because we don't agree with the way someone's running their country, but we play nice so they'll buy our stuff, we could be like, actually, no, we'll be fine. Like, that's really something that gives us a swing in our bat that we otherwise would never have had before as a country. It's just another reason that this makes sense. It's good for the environment. It's good for the economy. It's good for our security. I mean, the, the people arguing to take action on climate change are saying we want we, we should do it because it's it's going to underwrite our prosperity. It's going to create jobs, drive investments, secure our future. Versus those people are saying no, we should keep doing what we're doing and deliver more expensive electricity, destroy jobs, destroy manufacturing here, and guess what? continue to pollute the environment. It's a no-brainer, mate. <laughs> this is a no-brainer. But, yes, you and I can see this is a no-brainer, but we get to this point where, like I said before, it feels like there's no adults in the room, and this, in me, causes a huge amount of climate anxiety, a huge amount of anxiety, because it's like even I can see that we're not doing the right thing. Clearly, the, the people that have been running the show, many people don't understand that the lucky country wasn't coined as a as a good thing. It was a, you're a bunch of people that fell backwards into a, a sandpit full of resources and you got really lucky, okay? You can do whatever you want. You can make heaps of mistakes and you've got this enormous ballast that will always protect you. And and we've relied on these humongous companies to be there for us and, and they have, fair enough, massive political say in our nation. Clearly, those vested interests aren't going to go quietly. What do you see as we make this transition? Is there going to be noise? Is there going to be signals from them going, it's the wrong thing to do? Of course there is. I mean, you know, if you're one of the big energy companies and you currently own one of the only generators in the country, so you're acting as a a monopoly, of course you want the mums and dads and people listening to your podcast to pay higher electricity prices because it props up your super profits. I'm just saying that energy policy, our economic policy should be written uh, in the community interest, not invested interest. And recently I passed these uh, huge energy reforms through the New South Wales Parliament where it will now be the law to replace our existing coal-fired power stations when they close with renewables. And, again, we've taken the economic advice, the engineering advice that's now the cheapest way to deliver reliable electricity, and that's a good thing. And Mark Latham, you remember that guy? <laughs> Mark Latham, he used to be... Goff Whitlam's protege. Now he's Pauline Hanson's patsy oh, in New Wales. And he worked with the big energy companies to basically screw over consumers and keep electricity prices high. So, yeah, there's going to be vested interest and noisy voices, but 
you know, we've got to push through. We've got to keep pushing through. We need to show leadership. And, you know, that's why the work you're doing and continuing to get the message out there, continuing to argue the case, you know, promoting a diverse range of views and building that broad coalition. I saw you had Zali Stegel on recently as an independent. You know, you've got, you know, Labor voices in this. We need all people that care about our future prosperity coming together and saying this is the path forward and educating the community. When you look at climate change and, I mean, it was a great rebrand, I've got to say. It's global warming. Uh, (laughs) Call it what it is. When you look at that, uh, we are past a point where anything we do will make a difference for about 20, 25 years or so. Like what we do now will make a massive difference later in the century, but the changes we're going to feel for the next 20, 25 years, there's really nothing we can do about it. It's going to keep happening. Where are we as a state, as a nation, when it comes to taking seriously adaptation, mitigation. Every day we're just seeing Instagram videos of Byron Bay being washed away. And at some point, Matt, like someone's going to have to say a council, probably probably going to fall to a local council, but probably going to have to say we can't service your property or an insurance company's going to say we can't insure you. At some point, someone's going to have to call it, man. Have you planned for this sort of thing? How do you see that playing out? Well, I mean, there's not going to be one silver bullet in solving this problem. There's going to be a suite of things that governments are going to have to do. The longer you take to reduce emissions, the more likely it is you're going to have to spend money on other things to mitigate or to adapt to the life as we know it. So I'm arguing that we should reduce our emissions because it's good for our environment, good for our economy. And the sooner we do it, the less we're going to have to spend on adaptation and mitigation and doing things like you're talking about, you know, telling people they can't live in certain parts of Australia because it's just uninsurable or uninhabitable or too much risk. So there are a suite of things we need to do and government just needs to crack on with it. And that's going to, you talk about leadership, that's going to take the kind of leaders that we might, that maybe haven't been invented yet. You know, in the next 20, 30 years, we are going to need someone who's, who's got the guts to say, I love you, Lismore, I love you, Mwillambar, we're all going to have to go somewhere else because we can't afford to keep you here. Someone's going to have to call it or, or like there's going to be parts of the country, particularly in the north, uh, Darwin and Cairns, where it's just too hot to work outside and entire industries will be affected because there'll be that many days of the year where the season's so affected that you can no longer farm or do whatever because you just can't get outside because it'll actually be dangerous and you could die. <laughs> and this is what's coming, but someone's going to have to call it. Someone's going to have to do it. Yeah, I mean, we need leaders not in the future, Osha. We need them now. We need leaders with courage, with vision and ambition for our country. And uh, I don't really care, you know, what their politics are. I think that, um, you know, if you care about our country and you want to make it better, then, you know, I want to work with you. You know, and I hope they feel the same about people like me from the, the right of Australian politics. And we've all got to pull together if we're going to, you know, solve these massive problems and make sure that Australia made a great place to live, to raise a family. And I don't want to be, you're absolutely right. And I don't want to be, you know, ringing the fear bell and making everyone run for the hills because there is incredible opportunity. No, every system adapts once it's put under stress. There are incredible opportunities here. You know, there there really is, when you look at the economics of it, there really is an opportunity for us as far as exporting something like green hydrogen. And I'm not even, I'm not talking out of my ass. I've seen the reports. (laughs) There's an opportunity for us to equal, if not eclipse, coal export. Yeah, that's exactly right. But I think the point to make to your listeners is that this opportunity is not just going to fall on our laps. I was in Germany about this time last year, just 
I think in November, and I spoke to a conference in Germany to get people to invest in New South Wales, to invest in hydrogen projects in New South Wales. And when I finished my pitch, I was followed on the stage by the Moroccan energy minister, and he said, don't worry about Australia. We also have the sun. We're closer to Europe, and we actually take climate change seriously. Wow. Wow. So you were the, so you got like a stand up comedian who got sledged by the next guy off on stage. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I'm like, how do I argue with that? So the race is on, and we can go and get ahead of the curve and grab these enormous opportunities that are emerging in, you know, green hydrogen and green steel and aluminium and renewable energy. Or we can sit there, listen to Rowan Dean on Sky News and, you know, keep yelling at, you know, the five people that watch his program on Sky After Dark and ignore the reality and hope it'll go away. I don't think that's a very good strategy. Do you have anything to say about the influence of that particular media voice in our nation, Matt? Well... (laughs) I'm talking about the people that write the checks for Sky News, Matt. Well, um, I just think that Sky After Dark, it's just... That, that's not news or journalism, that's outrage. People that sit there and whip up outrage and it's ridiculous. You know, if it was based on science, if it was based on fact and uh, there were legitimate arguments that they were making, I'd go, yeah, okay, fair enough, that's a legitimate point of view, but it's devoid of reality. Yeah, but it is on free-to-wear in marginal seats of this country and people, it's got news in the title, so, you know... It's, it's pretty easy to go, oh, yeah, it's clearly true. It's on the telly. The telly hasn't lied to me my whole life. Well, I, I'm, I'm calling for them to put Osher Gunsberg <laughs> on Sky After Dark to give a bit of balance back. And- <laughs> Jesus, man, could you imagine? Could you imagine? I don't, I don't think they'd be ready for me, mate. Rational discussion. <laughs> I don't think they'd be ready for me. So let me say, so, because I want to talk about kind of things like what I'm about to ask you. You spoke earlier about the minority voices, fringe, very loud minority voices on either edge of politics, both the extreme left and the extreme right, having a lot of the a lot of the airtime, a lot of the megaphone, and then kind of skewing the public's idea of what is actually going on. As someone who's been in the party system for a very long time, you were in your late teens when you got involved, what are your thoughts around electoral reform in this country, democratic reform? Um I think we have an excellent system of government. It's not perfect, but, I mean, it's shown, you know, how good it is during this COVID crisis. I mean, arguably, our federation has handled COVID-19 better than anywhere else on the planet. You're always going to get interesting and diverse views thrown up in our parliaments, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's reflective of the communities that we're here to serve. But I'm calling for the centrist voices, the sensible centre, to start standing up and injecting themselves into the debate. I mean, we've inherited a strong and prosperous country from our parents and grandparents, and we've got a responsibility to make that stronger still. And that's why the centre of Australian politics needs to lead the charge on decarbonising our economy. We need to stand up. For too long, the debate has been dominated by the loud and angry voices on the left and the right. And the middle middle ground has remained silent. Well, I'm saying enough is enough. Have you ever heard of, you know, the use of citizen juries? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's an interesting thing that we we, we could look at. But the reality is those things take time. Those things take time. I mean, the best and most representative, you know, form of decision-making we have is at an election where you vote for 
your representative, for your delegate, for your voice in the parliament. And you want them going down to Canberra or down to Macquarie Street and using that voice. And I'm just arguing that there's been a lot of those voices sent to those parliaments that haven't stood up for our state or for our country. I, I do wonder, particularly in, in the Senate, when you look at like, hang on, what, it's like Malcolm Roberts or something was elected with 86 votes. I'm like, how, how could that even happen? And then go on to cause so much damage in the public sphere around, in particular, climate denial. Like, how do we even allow that to happen? How is that okay in this modern world of rationality, people who were, you know, a society that came out of the ultimately the Enlightenment and rationalism and based in humanism, humanist principles. Like, how does that even occur? How can we give something like that the mic? Well, I mean, that's a question for you and your industry, I think. You know, why do, <laughs> why do these get 50% of the airtime? Yeah. The vast majority of people in our parliaments are genuinely centrist. They're genuinely representative of their communities. But, you know, they don't get the same platforms as some of these fringe dwellers get. I mean, there is no way that Malcolm Roberts is representative of the section of Australian society, just no way on earth. Yet, why are we even talking about him on this? I mean, who is he? He's just a fringe dweller. <laughs> yeah, but but I think you're right. I think it plays into the bigger the bigger problem of where we are, is particularly with algorithmic news and what whatever is the most sensational will get the most eyeballs. I mean, this is why what you were talking about before the program you were referring is just outrage because it doesn't need to be real. It just and I've said it before on this show. There's someone I know who works, uh, shall we say, in AM radio talkback, and um, the station manager she was going, well, they're talking about a phone topic or something else. She goes, what about what do people think about that? And you said, oi. We don't make people think. We make people feel. <laughs> and for me, because that's what rates, all right? And it's proven, like, the thing that makes somebody angry or irritated or upset is the thing that they will click on or watch for longer. But it's not necessarily the, oh, hang on, now I think about it. There's no time for that. I've, my amygdala is already taken over. I'm already feeling this rush, and that's what I'm here for, that rush of adrenaline. Uh, <laughs> You know, I think the reform also needs to happen on absolutely in the um, in the broadcast industry and in the news industry, without a doubt. Yeah, and news has become so tribal; it's become focused on conflicts rather than uh, the common grounds that we need to move this country forward. And I think that's a real problem. I mean, you know, why is someone like Malcolm Roberts, who we were talking about earlier, given the same platform as someone who actually believes in science and actually yeah. understands economics? I mean, Craig Kelly. It seems to be the voice of one of the voices in the climate change debate. I mean, the guy was a furniture salesman before he got in. I mean, he wasn't an atmospheric physicist. <laughs> I mean, this is what it's been distilled down to. We need the sensible centre of Australian politics to stand up. The people that believe in science, the people that believe in free markets, the people that believe in expert advice and engineering, and they need a bigger platform. And I'm fighting to get them that. So, well, let's talk about that for a second. You are, you're a believer in, in free markets, and I lived in America for quite a while. I was there for 10 years. I saw what the free market did to something like healthcare. Uh, horrifying. Every now and again, government does need to intervene. And I would put it to you that what you're doing is kind of an intervention. You know, you would hope that the energy companies would go, oh, the coal's going to run out. We're going to start implementing solar already. No, we're just going to burn these things until they go and then will happen what happened when Hazelwood ended and then suddenly the energy prices go through the roof and the whole thing falls into a pit. You've had to intervene to go, let's not have that happen again, guys. Let's make it safe for capital. Let's make it safe for people to invest. So you have, you have intervened a little bit here. 
Well, we've set the playing field. We've provided certainty to the market so they can invest with confidence, and that's what you want, and let the market go and do its thing. And right now, the market is has already moved on this. Capital's moved on this. Superannuation's moved on this. Insurance has moved on this. The only ones that haven't moved are government and have been holding back the tide. So all I've done is set the playing field to let the market sort it out. And they're rational. They're moving to renewables, not because they're greenies, because they're capitalists. BHP, Shell, Volkswagen, Apple, they're moving to decarbonise because it's now the cheapest and best way to deliver their products and what's what their market's doing. So, you know, why, why would government be standing in the way of this? But there's, for, for someone who believes in the free market, you obviously you've had to intervene here. What, what do you have to think about before you make an intervention? What, what kind of signals do you go, okay, this isn't happening quick enough? What makes you go, okay, we're going to have to get in here and do something? Well, I think we've got to look at, you know, what's going to lead to the most efficient allocation of scarce resources and, you know, make sure that we're providing a safety net so people are not left behind, the vulnerable aren't hurt. Um, and that's the difference between a complete free market and a liberal democratic government that uh, wants to see the free market flourish but doesn't want to see anyone fall through the cracks. And that, that, that's my principle. So I, I call myself a progressive liberal that's economically rational. I, I get it. And thank you for explaining that because there Free markets are great and all, but I, I personally feel that every now and again, it is a government's job to step in and mm. particularly around healthcare and housing and, and, and looking after people who are at, you know, the, the more vulnerable end, but also keeping a check on the balance of the people who are way, way at the other end, getting their favourite lobsters flown in from Japan so they can, you know, have their special Christmas lunch. You know, it's keeping a check on, on that end as, as well is the tricky part when it comes to attracting capital to Australia. What what are we like obviously we're talking about hang on, we're talking about a boom bigger than coal. Goodness me, if someone had told me to invest in BHP in eighteen sixty, my God, you know, where would I live now? How can mums and dads, how can, you know, just the average punter investor get on board with something like this? We may not be part of a an, you know a humongous fund, but how can we get on board and be a part of this massive economic revolution in Australia? Well, I think that, um, I mean, how can they get involved? I mean, buying products that are aligned with their budgets and also uh, their values. You know, today there are cheaper ways to deliver electricity. So signing up to those electricity companies that are going to deliver that cheap, reliable electricity that is also clean. I mean, people are voting with their feet, whether it be purchasing electricity or vehicles or or, or whatever it is, and that's going to continue. So all I'm saying is that, my preference is for markets, my preference is for free enterprise, my preference is for innovation and choice, and that's what makes me liberal. And I think that I'm not an outlier here. I think the majority of Australians would prefer that system. But knowing also the majority of Australians are compassionate, they don't want to see people left behind, and that's where government needs to come in with a safety net, and that's what we're doing. But what about, say, you know, if you've got your little investor app on your phone and you've got a, I don't know, you've got to play with, I don't know, three or four grand that you might invest here and there. How can we be a part of investing in, in what is coming? What kind of companies are we, are we looking for? Well, I think all companies. I mean, all companies are moving in this direction. I met with the global CEO of Shell recently and he told me that apparently they spent $25 billion on the extraction of fossil fuels and $3 billion on renewables. And, you know, in the next few years, that's going to invert. Um, again, not because they're greenies, this is Shell, because they're capitalists. You've got companies like BP, uh, you've got companies like Volkswagen that are moving to 
completely remove combustion engines out of their fleets. Again, because that's where the market's going. That's where they can get the cheapest cost of capital. So I think the market's moving that direction. And I think people need to, when they're making decisions about how to invest, and I'm sure I'm not going to hand out investment advice. Oh, no, 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 I appreciate that. Pretty hopeless at it myself. So I think they've got to look and see what these companies' platforms are, what they're looking to achieve, and what their long-term horizon is. But certainly those companies that are basically sticking with what they've always done, I mean, they're at real risk, particularly in this economy, because it's so dynamic. There's so much exciting technology and innovation coming in, and it's delivered better outcomes for consumers and the country. And, um, yeah, those companies that are not going to adapt, well, they're going to be the blockbuster of the next generation. That's really it, isn't it? Like, I know I was in America when that happened. I was in America the summer that Netflix took over. In April, there was literally a blockbuster on every second street corner, blockbuster video and DVD, whatever. By October, those windows were painted in. It was like less than six months. It just ended. And that's like at the precipitous drop of, or the the Nokia of the smartphone. You know, the moment the iPhone came out, Nokia plunged, I think, within two years. Nokia went from like 119 billion to two. You know, but we can, we've seen this story before. We've seen this play out. So these guys like Barnaby Joyce and Matt Canavan, all these guys, no matter how much they yell and scream, they're not going to be able to stop reality. And the reality is that the market is changing, capital is changing. And to them, I say, stop defending Blockbuster when Netflix is here. <laughs> It's pretty good. Or stop defending oil when, you know, the sun is there. There's a free nuclear fusion reactor and and we can make money off it, right? Yeah. And it's there most of the day. It's free. It's free. It's totally free. The margins are excellent. Our raw material is completely free. The margins are brilliant, boys. You're quite young when you first started seeing the effects of, I guess, uh, progress and stuff and the the impact on the environment that you lived in. What was the moment for you? Because we all have that moment in our lives where our compass gets set quite early, our GPS gets locked in when we're pretty young in our lives. What what was it for you? Look, I grew up in Sydney's northern suburbs. Um, My family home backed onto a national park. So that was my playground growing up. I loved exploring. I loved bushwalking. I loved engaging with the native wildlife. So for me, you know, the idea of being anti-environment and liberal, that never made any sense to me. So for me, the idea of being pro-environment and strong on these issues is is part of who I am. And that's my community as well. I mean, I represent a seat that's only ever voted liberal. They've never had anyone other than a representative from the conservative side of politics. It's the Bushland Shire, for goodness sake. So people love the environment. These are liberal voters. So it's not you know, against liberal values, it's absolutely in line with them. It's so interesting that the narrative of, you know, you, you love the earth or you hate the money or you love the money and you hate the earth, you can't be both. You can't be both. Well, people often forget it was the Republicans that started the national park system in the States. Otherwise, we would have no Yellowstone. We would have no Yosemite. Those things would not exist in, in America. When it comes to the work that you're doing as far as you're tabling 12 gigawatts of renewables, which is gigantic, uh, which is, I think, three more than we have now. Is that right? Basically, we're replacing the entire system that we already have with clean energy. Fuck yeah. Sorry. You didn't swear, I did. But just, <laughs> yes, 
There we go. Fuck yeah. And there's um, <laughs> two gigawatts of storage that is involved in that, whether it be batteries or, batteries or pumped hydro. Pumped hydro, it's pretty simple. You know the way a hydroelectric dam works. Well, in the day when the sun's shining, the water gets pumped up the hill. In the night, water comes down the hill, goes through the turbines, boom, power. So that's how you store the energy. So when it comes to those parts of Australia where these things are big, all right, solar farms are big, turbines are big. When you think about who can benefit and how we might also change the conversation and solve some problems at the same time, certainly solve some problems in regional Australia and particularly with our Indigenous people. When you think about the opportunities there, what possibility lies ahead of us? Well, with our plan that we've just passed, we will see the creation of 9,000 jobs between now and 2030. So that's a huge job creator and the majority of that will be going in rural and regional New South Wales. As part of this reform, we've actually got a component which will require us to look at uh, increasing Indigenous employment and creating opportunities for those communities as well. But it will also see about $58 billion worth of investment. Private capital, this is not taxpayer money, this is not government money, this is the private sector, the market, Osha, coming in and building all this stuff. And that's a great thing. If they want to build it, they just needed the playing field so they had the confidence to invest. So that'll primarily go in the bush as well. And as a result of that infrastructure, that builds, we'll get some of the cheapest electricity prices anywhere in the world. So we think we can get electricity prices down from about $75 per megawatt hour wholesale down to about $45 to $50. And that'll give us, I think, the third cheapest electricity anywhere on the planet. So again, it's not only good for the environment, it's good for the economy. And with those low electricity prices, with the world moving to decarbonise, that gives you a massive competitive advantage in those energy-intensive industries. So things like smeltering yeah. and aluminium production, those you know heavy manufacturing, those big industrial processes, that's where the jobs are. So rather than those companies moving offshore, like we've seen you know in recent times, they'll be looking to move back to Australia because they've got a competitive advantage in that cheap, clean and reliable electricity. And that's a game changer for our country. And that the opportunity for the people on those parts of the of, of the country, and you know, you've been out there, I've been out there. The the it's like one percent a year of people moving away from these towns, and they're slowly dying. This fright, you know, it was really kind of like when a limb dies, like the toes are going black, the foot goes black, the calf goes black. Yeah. It's still there, but it's kind of like, eh, it's not what it used to be. Yeah. The opportunity to safeguard those parts of Australia that are just so important for our nation, for our food supply, which is another thing we kind of haven't really talked about. When you talk about food security in your job, your job, which is, is quite big, when you think about food security, you know, how does all this, what you're working on, how does all this play into the role of food security and indeed water security? Well, I think it's all part of it, right? I mean, how do we create a sustainable and renewable future? And, you know, just like when it comes to electricity production needs to be sustainable, so is the case when it comes to food production and uh, water. I mean, water is such a scarce resource in this country and uh, we waste a lot of it. We waste a lot of it because of mismanagement, vested interests. And, you know, that's an entire another shit show that we don't have enough time to talk about today. Not but today. It's about changing our attitude as a community, as a society, to move into more sustainable practices. And right now, uh, previously, there was a cost to moving to these practices, a cost to moving to more sustainable uh, ways to provide water and grow our crops uh, and provide our electricity. Now, it's actually the cheaper way to do it. So we need to start adapting, and that creates huge opportunities, curates new industries, mm. creates, you know, more efficient systems. So, again, we shouldn't just be arguing this because it's good for the environment. 
which is so important. But it's also now the economically rational position. <laughs> yeah. And for me, Matt, it kind of sucks that we had to wait for this moment, but I'm glad this moment's here. This is an exciting time. Like there has literally come an inflection point with the technology and the economics. Yeah. And we should be grabbing yeah. rather than fighting these silly wars from 10 years ago. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. There was a magical moment, I think it was in September, October, there was a magical moment where all of South Australia was powered by yep. solar energy. 77% came from rooftop. The rest was by large-scale solar farms. It was about an hour or so when this entire state was powered by solar energy. When you think about what that might feel like, I mean, it was a big deal. I think it was like 10 minutes, maybe an hour. Something yep. was a really small sliver of time. When you think that that could be just another day in New South Wales, what do you think about yeah, I don't think you're thinking big enough. I mean, the thing is that we can not only provide enough renewables to power our country, but if we overbuild the grid, we can provide additional capacity to help power other countries. And that's what's exciting. I mean, my vision for New South Wales is for us not just to be an energy superpower, but to be an economic superpower as well, one that's helping other countries decarbonise and meet their needs to power their economies. There's nowhere on the planet better placed to be an energy and economic superpower as the world seeks to decarbonise than Australia. And the only thing holding us back is the political will. And I think we're crashing through that. I think we're moving it forward. I don't think that any party could possibly go to the next federal election without this at the front of their portfolio. I mean, really. Like you said, like we're a mostly smart country. You know, the amount of school we went to can show us consequence and decisions and go, well, hang on a second. Yeah, we know we're just going Just like we were blessed with (laughs) an abundance of resources in the fossil fuel era. And that really did underwrite our prosperity. And those people that worked in those industries, they're so important and they've they've built our nation. But we're also got an abundance of resources for the new economy. (laughs) We've got more solar and wind than anywhere on the planet, right? And we've got a lot of cheap land. So Unlike in Europe, we don't have to do offshore wind, which is actually quite expensive. We can do it all domestically, all onshore. Yeah. It's going to be really cheap and we'll get some of the cheapest electricity anywhere in the world. So it's just crazy not to go and grab this opportunity. And what about you, Matt? How big are you going to go? Look, I mean, <laughs> how long is a piece of string? I'm, I'm just going to keep doing what I think is right. I'm going to keep fighting the good fight and we'll see where it takes me. Because, uh, yeah. <laughs> I could certainly see a lot more people getting behind someone on a, on a national level if they spoke like you did rather than sitting on holidays on a beach somewhere saying, oh, it's a state business while, you know, our entire freaking world burns to the ground and we can't breathe. And our kids well, that's can't all very school. nice of you to say, Osha, but my missus has a very different view. And uh, right now with a 10-month-year-old baby, I think she wants to be very close to home. So... You know who makes these decisions. <laughs> that's, that's all right. Don't worry about it. I just do the talking. Like I, my, my company's with my wife. I just do the stuff on the telly. And it only happens because of everything that Audrey does. There's, just, but I'm on the page. I get this, all right? And I tell her, and, you know, this will probably go on record and maybe one day it'll get brought up in court. But I say, honey, you've earned every cent of that 50%. You've earned every, every, every cent of that half. <laughs> you know, every single cent. Because she has, she like, like, and it's, it's, it's super important. Now, Matt, I know we've been talking for a while, and I know you're a very, very busy man, but not everyone's going to be a politician. Not everyone's going to be choosing a job in the public eye. 
in your day, you'll face difficult discussions. You've faced difficulties as far as, you know, media scrutiny of, of your life has gone. When you're dealing yeah. with a, a, a difficult day, when you're dealing with a tricky day, how do you manage that? What do you do for yourself to make sure you stay resilient enough to get up and do it again? So what's really important to me, Osha, is exercise. So I make sure that I start my day with a run or a gym session or something like that. I find it helps me deal with a lot of the pressure of the job. My family, so um, my partner and my, my kid, um, they're so important. They energize me. They help me focus. And just making sure that I'm surrounding myself with good people, good people who care about the community and, and want to make it better. Um, they don't always have to agree with me, but people that you can have respectful debate with. So good lifestyle, family and friends, and um, working with good people who want to make a difference. That's, that's sort of my little recipe. And what about when you're in, for example, if you are in a kind of stand-up, blow-down, shall we say, table-flipping confrontation with someone from the edge of, you know, the politics we were discussing earlier, how do you keep your cool? How do you maintain the level-headedness that, you know, do you kick off as well or do you, like, what do you do in that situation? No, I really try to be respectful and try to hear them and I'm a big believer in rational argument and rational debate you know, there's no point shouting or name calling. I think it's really important in my line of work to stay calm. Not everyone's going to agree with me. Not everyone's going to have the same perspective and that's okay. As long as, you know, I can argue my case respectfully, then, you know, I think that's really important. Do you think that given enough time, we can find enough common ground with, with most people? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, if we can't on some issues, we're not going to be able to find common ground on all issues, but we can on some issues. And I think where we can find that common ground, we should take it and try and collectively move forward. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of, like I said to you earlier in our conversation, it's very easy for our brains to fall into, it's this or it's nothing. It's this or it's nothing. And uh, yeah. particularly in my own experience, when it comes to I only eat plants in the, in the vegan world, there's definitely that. But I'm a firm believer in like, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Yep. You know, if it's good and it goes in the direction you want to go, just start. We'll figure the perfect part later, you know, because off, otherwise then you won't get anywhere. Yeah, totally. I mean, like there's such an important role for compromise, not just in politics, but in all aspects of work and, and life. And we don't see enough of that in the public eye. So it's, you know, so much, you know, everyone in their camps and fighting. Mm. And I don't healthy it certainly hasn't been healthy in the climate debate and i don't think it's been healthy for our country um we need to push past that mm. Th that's how we solve COVID. yeah uh, that's how we protected our citizens better than anywhere else on the planet and we should apply those principles and lessons to other areas of public policy it's super important to model that kind of behavior in the public eye to say no no they're not always yelling at each other sometimes they can you know i know you'd never ever put it to air but I'd, when you write the book i'd love to know how you got uh, Libs, Nats and Labor to all come along on this adventure to make some renewables happen in New South Wales because that would have been delicate and nuanced and, and tricky and, and give a little, take a little. It would have been trying to put together the perfect cake. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was literally finding the things that uh, everyone was passionate about, everyone that motivated them to come to the table. And let me say that this wouldn't have happened without the Nats in New South Wales. John mm. Barilaro's leadership was absolutely phenomenal here. It wouldn't have happened without the conservative liberals. Don Perrottet, um, Kevin Connolly, these guys, they were brilliant. They argued very strongly for the things they believed, and I worked to find ways to accommodate them. But just as important were Labor and the Greens. And, you know, even the Christian Democrats, Fred Nile, 
at 88, not known for, you know, being a progressive on many issues, but on this one, he put the community interest and the country's interest ahead of the best interest. So the only one that was out there working the interest of the big energy companies and their higher electricity prices was Pauline Hanson's Patsy Mark Latham in New South Wales. And it's appalling. Please, would you do me a favour and give my regards to your boss? I had a great chat with her about a year ago up in her yes. office and I, I take great glee when everyone now asks me about, how was your interview with Gladys? I'm like, well, from the lift to her desk and back again, I only passed women. <laughs> the only men that I saw were the ones on the wall <laughs> in the pictures. Totally. And again, you know, I'm not particularly someone that would vote for her in a hurry, but I was really grateful to know that, well, if you're there, then I'm glad that you're there. And I think it's important that we come to a point where we can go just because they're not from my, you know, I'll be happy when the New South Wales team win the state of origin, but I'm Queenslander. All right. So like I'll applaud good play at the cricket. Similarly, I'm like, fair play, mate. Fair play. Not on my team, but fair play. <laughs> you know, and I think that's important. I think we should do that. You know, let's pretend we're at the cricket and we're clapping when India get a six, you know, because <laughs> we want to applaud fair play. To your point, you know, Gladys is you know, she is a phenomenal person. She's someone that rolled up every day during the bushfires and the pandemic, mm. uh, make sure that, you know, she put people first. And whether, you know, she's wearing the Liberal badge or the Labor badge, that's exactly what you want your leaders to be. And, yeah. you know, she's done that with distinction. Has she been perfect? No. Who is? Who is? We've all made mistakes. Might have been very public, Osha, but, um, you know, you cannot fault the way she's handled the pandemic. You cannot fault the way she handled the bushfires. And, the community will get a chance to have their say uh, in two years. But, you know, I think she's done an amazing job. Well, Matt, all the best for the next two years. If you need any help, if there's anything I can do for you, I'm more than happy to, if you need to come and convince people that electric cars are good. I've been driving electric cars for 10 years now, nine years. I've got the first ministerial electric vehicle in the country. Brilliant. What is it? Tesla. Of course it is. Brilliant. Yeah. That's fantastic. I have a I have a Nissan Leaf. I like my car because my car can go vehicle to grid. So there you ah, go. Very impressive. Your Tesla can't go vehicle to grid. My car's got forty kilowatt hours in it. Unfortunately, the inverter currently costs ten grand. I can't afford ten grand. But yeah, you're just going off, all right? Like I can't keep up with this technical jargon. So the inverter that so there's solar panels on your roof. Yeah. There's an inverter between your solar panels and the grid. Yeah. Okay. So they're, because of scale, those are incredibly cheap now. Yeah. So that's the thing that goes, okay, we're not taking power from the house anymore. Boom, to the grid. That's the thing that flicks the switch. Similarly, the vehicle to grid inverters are the ones, okay, the car's pushing power not into the house anymore. We'll send power back to the grid. We might even make money on a feed-in tariff. Because rather than a Tesla Powerwall or any kind of battery that you may have, um, which is yep. only 10 or 12 kilowatt hours, my car's got 40 kilowatt hours in it. Which is more than enough. I don't. I charge once a week just to get me to get me around. So that means that any if I had solar, we don't at the moment. But if I had solar, that means any excess that I get off my roof, I could sell into the grid like anybody else. But my battery is not bolted to the side of my house. My battery's got wheels on it. I drive it around, and when I'm not using my car, it's making me money, sending money back into the grid. Very wow. exciting stuff, Matt. And if you want to talk more about this kind of stuff and implementation of this in, in New South I Wales, I'm your guy. <laughs> You want, you want me to come and push click on a PowerPoint for you? I'll come and talk well, to some investors for you, man. I will, I will very happily come and talk electric vehicles and fanboy you all at the same time. Mate, I'm, ser I'm not even joking. We, we, have, <laughs> we have got very, very little time to get this done. And however I can help you, do, don't hesitate to reach out, okay? 
All right, let's do it. I take this very, very seriously and I'll be more than happy to give you assistance wherever you need it, okay? Amazing. Thank you. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for your time today. Love you, work. All right, Andrew, your brother. Bye, mate. Well, that was the New South Wales Minister for Energy and the Environment, Matt Kane. Uh, you can find him on Instagram. He's Matt Keane MP, M-A-T-T-K-E-A-N-M-P on Instagram. Quite a chat, right? I mean, I was pretty, you know, open about what I was feeling at the time, talking to someone from the Liberal Party and hearing him say those things. You, you hear where I was going. Like, that was, for me, that was like, oh, we're having this chat. Okay. <laughs> I'm still, you know, processing it. But I kind of do feel more and more like this idea that I had in my head that there really is no adults in the room. No one understands and no one's doing anything. I'm really getting opportunity to challenge that more and more by having so many people on the show that are really the adults in the room and really are doing everything they can. People like Sophia Hamlin-Wang, Eitan Lenko, Um, yeah, it's good. Thanks for letting me do my exposure therapy with you live, guys, while I interview people about shit that scare- terrifies me but then <laughs> leaves me feeling better. I hope you're okay with it. All right, so I'm going to go. It's bath time for a baby. And um, thanks heaps for being here. Rachel Barrett, my executive producer and the woman that uh, facilitates mostly all of my life. Andy Ma for doing a heck of a job on um, cutting up all the podcasty things that I'm doing. And uh, Toe Hider, of course, who's a much better guitar player and instrumentalist than I am. He made all the music that you're listening to except for me. This is me playing guitar, just doing a G and a C ninth chord. And I'm just riffing like I'm John Bon Jovi before we go into a big power ballad. And then we change keys. This is the minor chords, yes. Uh, take care. Uh, I'll talk to you on Friday. Thank you so much for being here. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.